Morning guys, here we are today with Alison Conway, um, Group Head of Strategic Development at Trust Payments. Alison, good to have you with us, how are you? I'm doing really well, great to be here, Lawrence. Thanks for, thanks for the invitation. No, no, thank you. Thanks for taking the time to, uh, to speak with us. Um, and of course, um, Trust Payments, um, one of the companies now that is really moving the fintech sector forward. Um, I think it's kind of in the name as well, Trust. Um, Absolutely. So, so I mean, just just to kick off, I mean, why was the company founded, and like, really, what is what are the goals and the mission? Our our overarching mission is to make life and business life, in particular, simpler for all of our customers. We work specifically with small to medium sized merchants, and our reason for existing is to make it easier for them to be in control of their business, their money, their cash flows, and just really ensuring they have better access to, to their funds and that they can conduct their business where and how they want to. So that's, that's why we exist. We started initially as a sort of a core payment provider, mm -hmm. meaning we provided uh, author, uh, settlement services, we provided acquiring services, a payment gateway and the like, which fundamentally makes sure that companies can accept payment via credit card, whether it's online or in store. And over the course of the past three years, we've really been building out on that platform to, reign, to offer a whole host of services. So really offering everything from the ability to offer payment accounts, to account-to-account uh, -account payments, to on and off ramp of crypto payments and the like. So having a whole host of services that will move forward as, as each of our customers' business also evolves and moves forward. Now, I mean, again, the, the crypto payment space is obviously a very interesting one. Um, Indeed, yeah. It, it's obviously, it's an interesting time for the crypto markets. Um, I mean, from Trust Payments perspective, like what are your thoughts on the future of, of crypto, but then also the future of, of FinTech in general? So I'll start specifically with crypto. When we take a sort of a longer range view here, we've been involved in the crypto space for a relatively long time. So I mean, we currently now we've got a whole host of verticals and sectors that we work in from, from crypto to gaming, to retail, to hospitality and the like. But we started off initially more, you know, more in the crypto and more in the gaming space. Um, through our history and experience, we've developed a, I think a really sound understanding of what works and what doesn't. And I think we're able, we have the, the luxury, if you will, of being able to pick the the less risky of, of, the, of, of the crypto merchants and work with them and really develop a partnership with them, help them understand the business and provide them alternatives where, um, where they might have, they might not have had them previously. So what this means, for example, is just to think of um, on-ramp in particular, offering just the multiple currencies into, into you know, place multiple fiat currencies into crypto and offering a range of capabilities for them. In terms of the future of crypto, where we see that going, I mean, gosh, if I knew, I would, I would, I mean, the past few months in particular have obviously been an incredibly uh, rocky time for, for, the, for the market. Yeah. I was gonna say volatile, but yeah. yeah. Exactly, volatile, lots of, lots of amazing things happening. I mean, if you look in the past, you know, in the past 12 to 18 months, the number of retail investors, the number of members of the general population who have really started embracing crypto, I think I think that's really interesting and encouraging. It's, it's dangerous, I and mean, it can be. So people obviously need to be aware and have this element of trust in, I guess, an underlying mechanics of things that things will work. And what we're seeing is that I think the industry is still very much in a 
in an evolving phase. So yeah. there's a lot of great fundamentals there. I think if I think of the principles behind crypto, you can look at you know, the decentralized elements of it. Uh, there's a lot there that speaks to what people are looking for in the market. I think if you look at what the future of it is, I personally believe that it, let's going to see a phased approach. There's a lot of discussion around you know, trade-offs between crypto and then more, you know, more, more tethered currencies, whether that's going to be uh, something like a, well, a CBDC or the like. And obviously not traditional cryptos. So my thoughts on CBDCs are, I think, frankly, I think they, I think they could be, I think they are actually, a, a good stepping stone. And by this I mean is it's a good way to get more, more confidence sometimes in the concept of using digital currencies. I think people sometimes still struggle. You and I are going to disagree with this. I one. know, I know you are completely. And I mean, I get that it completely goes against the idea of, of a decentralized element of crypto completely. Um, does, it not, does it not worry you like the fact that I, I, I think it's not so much the CBDCs, it's rather what goes along with it, what comes along with it in terms of a government's going to be turning around and saying, actually, you can only spend money on X, Y, and Z, because surely at some point, I'm a big, belief, a, a big yeah. believer in like, taking personal responsibility. And the second that government starts telling us what we can spend money on, whether it's, you know, for our own good or not, like it's a dangerous part. You know, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. Indeed. And that, that is a dangerous path to go down. It is. And you're assuming here you're referring, of course, to the programmability that is inherent in, in digital currencies in, in general. And yes, that is is very much a double-edged sword. I would like to say I have all the answers for what would be done here. There are some benefits, absolutely. Uh, is it risky? Absolutely. What do you and see benefits? I think if you look at how... I think if you look at disbursement, for example, thinking of um, going back to the pandemic and the disbursement, the government disbursement of funds, for example. Oh. If I look at, you know, you can tell from the accent, I hail from the U.S. originally, and thinking of you know, the U.S. government sending, sending checks in the mail to people. And if you'd had a CBDC or something along those lines at that point in time, that could have been dealt with much more quickly, much more efficiently, and people would have had the money in their account much, much, more, much more easily. Then you could also say, look, you know, this money can't be spent, to your point about what government telling you what you can or cannot be spent for, fair enough. Yeah. But what you could do in those instances is say, look, the, you know, this money is, is really made, making sure that people can afford to get by because a number of people lost their jobs in, during, during the pandemic. So this money is to be spent for pretty much anything you want, but shouldn't be spent on you know, gambling or shouldn't be spent on but, booze but, or whatever. Yeah, but, then, yeah, but, but why? Like, you know, gambling and booze are two very like um highly taxable businesses and let, let, let's be clear mm-hmm. i am openly 100 yeah. against online gambling I, I would if i had a magic wand i would ban every online gambling company casinos i don't mind so much but these online casinos that we're walking around with in our pocket are a disaster indeed so to my mind if the government's providing you know, money to make sure people can survive in a, in a chance they've lost their jobs, that money should be spent to ensure they don't starve, to ensure that their families don't starve sure. for that purpose. For that purpose, I am good, frankly, with having yeah. some some curbs on it. I think, and I, I, get, I get the point, and I certainly think it's up for debate. I think the, in terms of having a distribution mechanism, I think having, having the disbursement, the electronic disbursement of government funds is made much simpler with a CBDC. I fully appreciate 
the oh. risks and the the fear, frankly, and the dis the dis dislike of having being told how to spend the money. And I think, in general terms, I absolutely agree with that. I don't want someone telling me. I mean, if I want to. You know, as an adult, I should be able to choose how I want to spend the money. If it's government funds for a particular purpose, I'm less worried about that specific aspect. But then the bigger question for me is, how do we ensure that, that let's just say, to your point about good intentions. So the government sets off now, and you get this, you get a deposit in your account because it's yep. a hard time. Yep. Fine, I'll, I'm, I'm good with that. But then where, how do you ensure the line's drawn and that line is not crossed later on to, I, I don't have an answer to that question. In 20 frankly, years from now, but that, that, that's the thing is that it, it's not so much about now, Indeed. what happens in the future. And I yeah. think that, you know, with, with um, CBDCs, you're right. When you talk about things like, you know, making sure that people have a certain standard of living, 100%, like, you know, we're sitting at the um, dawn of a new era of capitalism. Yeah. There's opportunity to really um, create more opportunity. Well, there's, sorry, I was gonna say, there's an opportunity to create more opportunity. In the other way, that's kind of what I'm trying to say. There's, you know, we, uh, new companies in new industries with new jobs uh, for technical and non-technical people. Um, that also has its own challenges with automation. Absolutely. Uh, but in terms of in terms of any form of control, I just don't like the idea of having some form of like credit score system used against us. Yeah, I agreed. I guess you could argue they do already with credit cards. I mean, as a credit credit covering system. I mean, to be That's fair, it. there are alternatives. There are alternatives to that. And if yeah. if it becomes a case where where the only way the main the main currency in a country is a CBDC, cash is no longer relevant or no longer part of people's normal daily lives, which is increasingly becoming the case. Yeah. Uh, and then if it is all CBDC, then I, I, I agree. It's, it's, I don't want someone seeing everything that I spend my, my money on just, just for you know, sheer privacy reasons. Sure. So I don't think that there has to be, I don't also don't think it has to be an either or. I don't think it has to be either CBDC or crypto. And I think what, what might happen here, what, what I can see happening is having, having CBDCs be almost cryptos with training wheels to a certain degree in terms of getting get, getting people yeah. to be more comfortable getting a certain sectors of the population I mean, more comfortable but i mean crypto i think for the most part is definitely the future in some form or another yeah. again i've always said to jan uh, my co-founder around yeah. i'm much more bullish on the technology than i am actually on on the actual individual crypt cryptocurrencies i still struggle with bitcoin now, I can see it going to a million, but I, I don't. I still don't have any justification as to why that is. Um, yeah. You know, but I mean, in terms of the actual fintech sector itself, I mean, what does this adoption of crypto mean for the fintech sector? And, you know, how is it going to shape our lives? That is a million pound question. Yeah. I mean, multi-billion I mean, pound. Yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly that. Um, how, what does it mean for fintech? It means... Or reshaping, quite frankly, I think of the entire financial institutions and how how they relate to one another. The potential for change, and some would argue disintermediation or other elements. You know, it's 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 a huge opportunity. It's a it, it heralds in a significant um, era of change, and with, for all the good and the bad that comes with that, it's a huge opportunity for financial services to reinvent itself. We can look at some of the challenges the sectors face historically, whether that's discussions around you know, inclusivity, uh, whether that's discussions around fairness, transparency, uh, all those elements. I think the 
you know, crypto and digital currencies in general really help alleviate you know, a number a number of those challenges. It's not it's not clear cut. I don't think it's going to be a linear path. I don't think we go from where we are now with you know financial services being where they are to just this this, this linear path towards nirvana. I don't I wish I wish it were that easy. Uh, I, I don't think it is. And you know, given what, what we see in the volatility in the public markets and private markets, frankly, as well, over the past couple of months, you've obviously seen valuations plummeting. You've seen fintechs struggling to, you know, to prove their worth. And I That's think it's good yeah. and good for us. Like it sounds awful mm-hmm. to say, but all of a sudden, like these mad valuations yeah. have actually created a more of an even playing field for the younger companies. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it, um, you you touched on it there in terms of you know you, talk, you spoke about how this is like reinventing um, our lives. Obviously, trust payments as a company, you know, you're, you're reinventing a large part of the of the fintech sector yourself. Um, you've been shortlisted for quite a few uh, quite a few awards. Um, yeah. what, what what is it that you guys are getting so right at the moment? Well, that's. That's a good question. We have we have a, a lot of frankly. I do try it. I, I do try, Alison. I want to do questions. Yeah. Uh, so I think one of the things we get right is we have a fantastic team. We have a. It sounds a bit corny, but we have got sayings internally: a one trust, or we're better together. And I think all of those. We actually do believe that, and we've got a wonderful team who really does work together. It's a collaborative atmosphere. So what that means is we've got a sharing of information internally and across teams and people are genuinely excited to be building building a you know thing that will be helping shape the financial market going forward and if i think of this you know one of the awards you've been shortlisted for is you know, the leading emerging payments organization we've also been shortlisted for the best esg initiative in payments so for us and for for our company it is it's not just buzzwords I mean, they're things we really, sure. really do believe in um, so we're looking at how we can ensure we're living up to our values. So if, again, if you look at using financial services, using fintech as a source for good, you know, how can we ensure that not just in our company, but in general, that people who have access to finances, whether it's you know, whether it's through crypto, whether it's through other mechanisms, how do we ensure that as you look around London and see the diverse population that's out there, you want to see that reflected everywhere, you know, not just not just you know on in marketing in marketing brochures and the like so really looking at how we reach out how we include everybody in, in, our, in our company but then also if we look at partnerships and how we look at who we work with and why we work with the various companies and that that comes across you know thankfully in in um in the recognition that we are receiving in the industry as a whole as well and i mean in in terms of in terms of the partnerships um to just like really from like a high level uh, perspective yeah um you know, what is it that you guys are actually looking for when you're actually forging a partnership? What is it that you're looking to help give you that competitive edge? Uh, when we look at partnerships, we look at a range of things, not least of which is is um, what we're what we're doing in terms of how we look at someone who can complement our approach and our technology. Is will this partner help us get to market more quickly? Will they, you know, again to the earlier point about the values and and the elements that we are working on together. How do we, do we have a natural, is, is it a coming together of minds? Is it, do, do we, do we, is there something here that's more than about, about more than just earning you know, the, the money? It's that part has to be there as well, but it's very much, how do we work together? How do we ensure that together we're building something that will be lasting, that will encourage trust, that will encourage collaboration, that will encourage the, the, a true partnership, if you will, on the market. And 
it's that whole cliche about having the the sum of the parts be, be greater than just than, than just if, if they were taken individually so it's really looking for mapping out where we want to be where they want to be and ensuring there's a long-term transparent collaboration and 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 in terms of, in terms of the actual company itself am i correct in saying you've grown from about 100 150 to 500 people that's correct i joined trust payments about two and a half years ago right basically right as the pandemic was starting so started off really time. and it's always always a challenge to uh, take on a new within a new team and then build you one of the people out. that were you, were you one of the people that didn't meet their teammates for the first Indeed. Year? you were my, my first day on the job at trust payments was literally the first day that uh, that we went into lockdown so i remember sitting at home on um was it March 11th, right before things right before things kicked off? I was starting March 16th with my, my first official day. Uh, so I'm sitting at home and I see an email come in from my boss who's the CEO and the head of HR. I'm thinking, uh-oh. Yeah, well, you are. And it, uh, what I was at that point. Yeah. And what came through instead was a, hey, we're looking forward to having you join us. Please don't come to the office. Yeah. So my my first day was literally the day that we went into lockdown. So I, I, the whole learning and get building building these bridges remotely was, you know, it adds to the challenge, but it also bonds people on the way too, because it's, it's, it's a different experience than we're all used to. So yeah, I was def definitely one of those people. And, 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 and culturally though, has it has it posed any challenges? Again, you know, again, trust payments, right? It's it's about like unity, like you say, it's about collaboration. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of like scaling, you're scaling very fast. Does it make it more challenging, like you guys all now being remote or? I mean, we're, we're back no. in the office a lot more now. So I would say, right. no, I mean, obviously post challenges in the beginning for sure, um, in terms of really getting the communication, but this big, but the challenges of post, I think also made us really strong in terms of ensuring the communication lines are clear. Sure. And one of, the, one of the principles we have as a business, and I think another element that has contributed to our success is the adaptability. We're able to, we're nimble, we're able to adapt and move and change to what's needed, frankly. And the lockdown and everything else just helped instill that. So to your point, yeah, when I started, there was 150 people in the business. We're now at 528 last count. Yeah, that's been you know, two years and four months. That's a lot of growth, obviously. Yeah. And what, what it does do is it ensures that when somebody comes on board, that that those that element, that culture of of communication of transparency is, is built in and that does help in terms of by you know, link that back to the partnerships that, that we that we forge to our professional relationships you know to our customers to our clients that element of communication and transparency and working together really is it's been built in there and instilled from the ground up so i mean and, and you know there's i actually i have to say in, in terms of the actual office thing yeah. i'm kind of a believe that everyone should be back in the offices I, I i go back and forth with that but yeah. i think you have to do what's most what optimizes maximum um maximum potential for your company but mm -hmm. i kind of feel everyone should just be back in an office now i i guess i'm enjoying the face-to-face -face. i mean i like having a mix i think people should yeah. be allowed to have a bit of a bit of a hybrid situation where they can control works for them i kind of going back to be able to make choices you know if i link it back just it people should be able to decide to a certain degree what works best for them overall having said that i think it's huge value in having the team together face to face yeah. the innovation the ideas that come off of that it's the impromptu conversations that's the, that's the magic that i kind of missed yeah. frankly during, during lockdown I, I miss it like we're we're obviously like at realm we're, we're like spread across like four continents all just across the world yeah um like i've got people that i've worked with for the last like two and a half years and just never met them yet and it's awful like i i will 
yeah. um, we, we, you know, but at the same time, I'd love to be in an office with them. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, go, what were you going to say? I was going to say, on, on that point about the meeting people for the first time, I remember meeting one of our sales guys who I had no idea was six and a half feet tall, basically. So I meet him for the first time. I'm used to seeing him like, you know, like I'm seeing you. You, know, you haven't hit, you all look roughly, roughly the same size. Yon, Yon, like, oh my so, god I had no idea you were that tall so yeah. actually went to meet like one of the developers we were working with yeah. and he came back and first thing he said he was like how tall do you think he is I was like five nine five ten doesn't he was like he's about six five six six exactly that exactly I was like, that. Oh, yeah. yeah um but I mean in in terms of in terms of like you know um um you know the, the fintech sector right now I've got to say that I've always felt that the financial services industry has never been forgiven after the 2008 financial crisis. Mm -hmm. We're now kind of at, uh, there's definitely a stepping stone. There's definitely a bridge where there's more openness to fintech companies. And we've seen that over the past decade in terms of like VC, private equity funding, government-backed initiatives. Yeah. Um, but again, in terms of the financial services yeah. sector, I think it's, you know, never really recovered and maybe rightfully so but I mean in terms of like companies like with trust payments you're now almost you're like this new era of of of, of fintech of financial services so what do you guys do to actually like not just rebuild but like also instill that confidence in your team and and also in your customers right so taking a step I guess a step back if I look at why there's been a huge I think there has been a step forward from 2008 to 2009 to where we are now in fin right. fintech in general, financial services. And I think that's been brought, and I think a lot of the challenger banks, whether that's, you know, Monza, Revolut, whoever else, uh, is brought that on by making things easier. So if you look at the traditional banking sectors and how, how you go about opening up an account, for example, you know, back in 2010, huge difference to how it's done now. So I think fintech in general has made life for different players is easier to manage, simpler, and we do that going forward. If I look at trust specifically, if I look at a number of our merchants who without us would have a harder time perhaps opening an account or being able to transact across different, you know, different geographies, different currencies, different different markets. So what we do in terms of making making sure we instill this is just it goes back to our ethos when we spoke about at the very beginning about the mission we have as a business is to make life easier for them. So we're earning that trust every day. And we earn that by consistently putting ourselves in their shoes and thinking about, okay, you know, if I'm if I'm a merchant and uh, maybe I'm not gargantuan, so maybe I actually I need to have visibility and where um, my money coming in, I need to have access to it. I need to make sure my business is easy to run, and I need to make sure that that happens that happens uh, without unnecessary roadblocks. So we do everything in our power, whether that's looking at our product development roadmap to figure out, okay, what do we need to have here to make life easier. How can we make things more transparent? It's, it's taking, I think, that those initial steps about making it easier for merchants. We're we, you know, moving a lot of those ridiculous hurdles that used to be there, not trying to lock somebody down for you know, yeah. five, 10 years and just really putting that customer first mindset. Just, it sounds, sounds a bit cheesy, but just looking at the merchants, you know, most of us have, have worked in various smaller businesses as well. So we know how important control over cash flow is we know how important it is to have visibility and transparency so ensuring that experience every experience a merchant undergoes whether that's from the moment they apply for an account with us to the moment they you know they reach their 10th anniversary or whatever that just ev everything is is clear is easy is, is transparent sure. i mean and, and in terms of i wouldn't just say yeah. uh, transparent I, i'd almost say actually 
they're just more accessible in some ways so like yeah. one, one thing one thing like when I when I left, left university I, I like jumped into like the financial services sector in London um mm -hmm. not a million miles away from your office in bank and um I um you know and it was very much like a, a closed shop right like when we started Rayon, like we reached out to companies, you mentioned like Monzo Bank, like, hey, you know, this is what we're doing. We need your help. Would you be open to like just testing our product? And they're like, yeah, sure. And they just, they literally helped us for about like six, six, seven, eight months just on research and development. Perfect. And just, like, yeah. just, I literally just, um, just, they, they gave us quite a lot of time and uh, yeah. it, it really it enabled us to find the right product market fit much sooner, you know, so. Absolutely. But that's a cultural thing, I think. Yeah. It shifted a lot. I remember opening up my first, I had my own business in 2013, opening up a bank account at, at Barclays at the point in time. Yeah, I got there in the end. It was fine. But yeah, I had to go down and meet with the branch manager, show all these different forms of, of, of documentation. Yeah, and then obviously they, you know, there's various reasons why those why those rules were in place. But you know, now you go to Tide, you go to Monza, you go to Revolut or whatever, you give them, you literally file out the form online and then everything's there. I'm just going to hit pause for a second. Sure. So yes, so 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 we were, we were just saying that um, you know th there's just a like a really change in in attitudes, and, and I think you were saying about when when you know, when you started how different things were. Well, completely, I do think the attitudes change both from the market in general, but then also from from people's expectations, from individuals' expectations of the market, and. I don't know which one came first. I'm going to guess it was the individual's demand, which after a point in time, you can ignore one or two people. But after a while, when you've got enough critical mass built up, it's kind of hard to ignore you know, the, the, the continuing demands from a large population. So that ability to have more access, to have, to have easier, yeah, increased accessibility is what's critical. And that opened, that opened the floodgate. I don't think that was necessarily the intention back in 2014, 2015. I think the changes that were heralded in at that point in time with the ease of opening up accounts, ease of conducting business, where you didn't have to be an institution with 10 years trading history or five years trading history, that opened the door to, I think, a new way of thinking. And people realized, oh, wow, you know, we, we can make it easier for smaller businesses to flourish. And guess what? It's actually, it's, it, it encourages more trade. It encourages, it encourages growth. It encourages more inclusivity, all of which are good things. I think that's at the foundation, which then really drove and it is this increasing mindset of let's let's open that let's make sure more people can come along on this ride not just those who have a particular background not just those who've spent you know maybe 10 years or whatever in a in a particular bank so what's your background what were you doing before my background's varied i would say my i've been in payments specifically for about probably about five five six years now so before, right before trust i was working with a company called MichiPay, which is a startup that allows you to use your smartphone as a till. So you can go into a store, scan something on, on your phone, pay for it in the phone, and, and then walk out the door without having to actually wait at, at the till. So then I was helped them raise their Series A funding and help build the team up there. Quite revolutionary at that, at that point. At that point, it was, for sure, for sure. I mean, now we're seeing increasing increasing degrees of, of self-checkout, which I think is fantastic. It can be really liberating for people to that you can get enriched product information on your phone you can do, do a, a whole host of things and importantly you can save time you know it's if you're on your lunch break or if you're really trying to get home quickly after work rather than queuing for a long time it's just it's just easier hey, queuing. 
yeah I mean most of us do I know it's a I think it's a national pastime but, yeah. oh yeah, yeah. but I think a lot of us still do it yeah um so so that was my I worked a couple of different areas in payments and before payments I have a I've thought of a long history in e-commerce. I came to payments through e-commerce. So I started my career many years ago, got to in the late 90s, like it was in 98, 99, and boo.com and e-commerce. And so basically selling sportswear online. And through that, through the evolution of e-commerce and seeing coming to a market early and then adapting that market to I guess the general demands as, as they evolved led me from selling sportswear to role at Amazon for a number of years to then work I was at eBay through and through an acquisition. So you kind of had a whole range of experiences building up digital brands and e-commerce businesses, which then got me to realize how important, how critical payments are. Because at the end of the day, you can have beautiful, you know, beautiful customer experience and beautiful websites. But if you can't actually transact, it's a little less, it's a little less meaningful. So my the background I have in payments came about through uh, through my experience in e-commerce. And, and again, I mean, in terms of like uh, trust payments, I mean, again, you know, you, you're one of the companies pioneering in this space. Um, really, like, what, what's what's next for you guys then? So much. Um, so I look at one of the, one of the areas that's really made us pioneering. If, I think it's, it's our if we look at our risk management and we can sort of, as I mentioned earlier, we've have a long experience in working with crypto working in some of the gaming space and working being able to evaluate risk effectively and efficiently we've done that through developing algorithms and some ai that helps us evaluate the types of merchants who are likely to be better frankly better for us meaning a little less risky more manageable so if we're looking at how we can develop more more of this more of the automated more of the ai elements understand the merchants needs and also their own customer needs one of the things we're working on actually is um to work in the gaming sector, we do a lot of, if, you know, that's been an increasing amount of focus and regulation in the gaming sector, which I think is, is healthy for everybody. And so one of the things we're looking at doing is using our knowledge of the customers and the merchants to help flag up any you know, a customer who might be higher risk and therefore less, should, shouldn't be, shouldn't be um, encouraged to, to engage in certain activities. So you can basically apply a, a, a chance of harm score, if you will, to, to individuals. And we can do this from looking at, um, from looking at doing a cross-reference of information we have for a number of our customers across across uh, money remittance sites, across gaming sites, across crypto and other elements, and get a pre pretty clear idea of certain types of behavior that might be might need more management than others. So in terms of helping to identify those who might be at greater risk for, for falling into a, yeah, a a gaming trap, if you will, or a gambling trap, and should not be spending their money in certain ways based on just you know, previous tips. We can help, basically, we can help gaming operators stay on the on the right side of any regulations there are, reduce risk, and you know, importantly, encourage healthier behavior when it Which comes to probably one of the benefits of CBD of of, yeah. of CBDCs, right? Yeah, exactly, um, exactly that. I, I I always like to try and like evaluate everything in terms of. Yeah, you have to like you have, you have to like weigh up the, the good and the bad. And I, I think in terms of that, that's 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 definitely like one one of the benefits. Yeah, no, exactly, exactly. And it's I mean, there's obviously I mean we were talking earlier about the balance between get you know the, the balance between being told what to do, but then also having 
having certain types of funds or certain types of activity being being more closely monitored. I think as long as people understand and know what's happening, I, 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 where I draw the line is if if anything's being measured or evaluated without people's you know, permission, for example, that's I think that's where, in my opinion, that's where the line gets crossed. So things, again, goes back to transparency, goes back to trust and communication, but it's making sure we have the tools in place to help our merchants, help their customers have have you know, the best the best experience possible. Yeah, um, and, and in terms of 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 some sort of like market defensible strategy, it's a very very noisy space. There's hmm. like I, 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 as you can imagine, I speak to a lot of companies yeah. in this space. Like, are they going to be like clear winners? Is is there room to have like multiple? Uh, companies or oh, sorry a large volume of companies in this space and uh, if not how, how do you guys really um, how do you implement some sort of like market defensible strategy so the market defensible strategy I mean there's certainly room for multiple players yeah. we think you know I think we're quite strong I value I would say I'm a little bit biased of course but, I yeah, well, say, uh, but um, yeah in terms of defensible strategies I think it comes about through having Couple, a couple of elements. One is certainly the depth of experience. And we do have that because a lot of companies are also new into the market, which is great in terms of innovation. But we do bring to the table is this deep, this deep rooted understanding of our merchants and of how they need to interact with their customers. So that allows us to stay a step ahead of the game. It allows us to build you know, these algorithms, for example, where we can understand more clearly customers' behavior and that we can really offer tailored solutions to our merchants. And I do mean tailored solutions. Another example of that is working with a, a debt collector as one, one of our, our customers and help them understand how they could best communicate with their customers by evaluating the timing of various authorization rates and when like, the timing of when they're better able to communicate with their clients to make sure that they, that they get any, any 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 debts in order and the like so it's really having that tailored approach the one-on-one -on -one bespoke service if you will to a number of, to a number of our customers that's where to find in company that doesn't work purely with enterprise customers. So we, we do this, this more bespoke, more hands-on, more personalized approach for, for our smaller merchants too. And we're able to do that because if you look at you know, the question we often get asked is, well, how do you make that scale? And the answer is, it's again, it's through, through the use of data that we have, through the use of understanding and being able to spot the trends and use the information we have to for, you know, for predictive reasoning and to, use that information to predict accurately how how our customers can really work in the, work in the optimal way with their end customers so that we can provide that that the insights. Everyone's got tons of data these days, but it's a question of how oh, is that yeah, used? Yeah. How, how do you filter that? How do you turn yeah. that something that's actually usable and actionable? And that's, yeah. that is something that frankly, I think is still in, in short supply. And the reason it's in short supply is it, it takes time. It's, you know, yeah. It takes a large amount of information and data to be able to understand and build a you know, reasonable model. It's just it's pure statistics at at some point in time. Everyone has the data. No one knows how to use it. Exactly. That's a lot of them. So that that's one aspect, and it's personal relationships and it's 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 trust. I mean, it's reputation in the industry. It's a, it's a whole number of things. Can I ask you just just um, like one last thing? Like in terms of like the like the old school like asset management companies, yeah. right? Some of them like managed like hundreds of billions of dollars yes but yet they haven't they haven't actually evolved their technology they've just kind of they've got a, they've got a, a business model it works they stick to it 
good for them like like genuinely but uh, yeah. at the same time like are, are we going to see some sort of like erosion of these old school like asset management companies even if they're managing hundreds of billions uh, are, are fintechs going to just come and they're starting to already i mean there's a number of automated investor management tools and platforms out there i think the short answer is if these asset managers don't adapt then yes i mean they've been able to sit back on their laurels because they have tons of money and they're in, a, you know, they're in the luxurious position of being able to say yeah fine and they'll be they'll be okay for a little bit but if they don't adapt yes absolutely i think they'll see their their the customers eroded away yeah and i think we're, I mean, we're already seeing some of that for sure for sure you know looking at you know, platforms um just you know to not make other ones just all kinds of automated automated and more algorithmically driven uh, investment platforms that allow people to invest in money and get a similar return that you might have with some of these asset managers without needing to pay the fees, without needing to have the the older, like the old school, if you will, structure and um, overhead built up all around it, which of course then you know, that brings costs down. So that's why these these newer firms don't need to charge the same fees that a lot of the asset managers do charge currently. Which are, yeah, they are, yeah. they are expensive. Yeah. Actually, I met with a company yesterday. They, they were essentially offering like asset management services, mm -hmm. but just like, just they're, they're the only asset class they were working in is like crypto. Yeah, yeah. And it was just like, all of a sudden there were like all these offerings. It was like ETFs and yep. all these funds. Oh, and it was yeah. not, not one company from the S&P 500 you know, yeah. nothing like that. It was just purely just like a, a blend of like coins. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's just really interesting because you wouldn't have seen that a while ago. I mean, this whole the whole ETF, ETFization, if you will, of crypto, the fact that you can, can now have that with for, for cryptocurrencies is a big indication of how far things have come and how much more normalized you know, crypto has become and will continue to become. It's obviously at the moment, it's, it's not doing great in terms of returns, but it's, no, it's you know the market evolves over time, and I think it's a long play. To stay. It's, right. It is a long play. It's a long play. I, I also I also feel that, and again, mm -hmm. so their customer base was like ultra high net worth individuals, and yeah. they were you know I, I think I take the view on it that what we're seeing right now in the crypto space, and I've said this before, it's no different to what we saw in the tech bubble crisis yeah. in like two thousand one. You're going to see like this flushing out of all the scams, all the all the rubbish exactly, companies, exactly. And you know the, the the companies that are left is going to go from strength to strength. Yeah, exactly. You see, yeah, market consolidation happens periodically, and you know we're we're in it, we're in it for, for the long haul. Certainly, I think crypto is also a long a long term play. Will there be disruptions? Absolutely. And will there be unexpected things happening? Absolutely, for sure. Well, Alison, it's, it's been great to have you today, and thank you so much for your time. Um, looking you, forward to see how everything goes with trust payments, and uh, yeah, no, no doubt we'll be catching up with you guys soon. Hope so. Looking forward to it. Thank you.